Hi everyone, this is Divya Gupta for the In Common Podcast, a show that explores the career and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In this episode, I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Daniel Miller. Dan is an associate professor in the School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame and has been extensively working looking at the socio-economic, ecological and the political dimensions of forests in the tropical countries. In this conversation, we focus on two of Dan's research projects. One, on conservation legacies, and his other parallel ongoing project, looking at the role of forests as pathways to prosperity. Later in the episode, we also discuss about Dan's new role as the coordinator of FLAIR, which stands for Forest and Livelihoods Assessment, Research and Engagement. In our conversation about Dan's research and conservation legacy that he started as a graduate student in the West Africa region at W National Park, a park that spreads across the countries of Benin, Niger and Burkina Faso. In this project, Dan mostly focused on how protected area governance interfaces with international aid. Interaction with Dan on this topic was a great way to explore the critical question of what conservation funding really does for people and protected areas in tropical countries. Dan shared that international aid has disproportionate impacts on people. While it provides new sources of income to some, with creation of jobs in the areas like park management, monitoring and tourism, at the same time these opportunities do not extend to all in the community. Dan suggests that this happens because the aid has a tendency of what he refers to as missing the middle. He says that the aid programs, when implemented, often tend to partner with national governments, national park agencies, and forest departments, but rarely with the local governments. And that, according to him, ends up being a problem because these local governments have a more significant impact on the lives of people. Now, as Dan is extending his work on conservation legacies in other countries like Bhutan, Peru, and Madagascar, he's finding that while external intervention in the form of aid in conservation in low-income countries is important, it works best when it is inculcated in local governance structures and brings clear benefits to people. In our discussion on Dan's another ongoing project on forest-poverty relationships, where he's working with a large team of scholars looking at the impacts that forests can have on poverty alleviation, Dan shares that his vision for this project is to highlight how forests can serve as pathways to prosperity. He says that changing the framing of forests as pathways to prosperity is important because in the larger policy discourse, the benefits of the forests are mostly linked to carbon sequestration. But in reality, the forests provide critical socio-economic benefits, especially to those in low-income countries. Dan emphasizes that it is crucial to understand these benefits to develop viable and equitable ways of sustaining our forests. In the end, we wrapped up our conversation by discussing Dan's new role as the coordinator of FLAIR. He shared that as a coordinator, he aims to retain the great sense of community that FLAIR already has and intends to grow that sense of community by opening to new partners like practitioners, donors, activists, and local community members. I recorded this episode right before the FLAIR conference, which was in Rome this year. So I'm incredibly grateful to Dan for being kind enough to accommodate this interview at that time. Overall, in addition to his scholarship, I was greatly inspired by Dan's humility and honesty as he talked authentically about his different roles. 
his role as a researcher where he's working on raising the profile of the issues that he believes need more attention, his role as a teacher where he constantly strives to keep the sense of hope in his students alive as he teaches some of the most critical and challenging issues we are facing in the world today. And now, as a coordinator of FLAIR, where he's working on upholding and prioritizing the value of community building among academics and other stakeholders for doing meaningful research. Thank you all for joining. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Dan. It is so good to have you as our guest. Uh, I had been ardently following your work, especially your recent scholarship on the role of forests, in eradicating poverty in low-income tropical countries. I'm really excited to hear more about that. In addition to that, I'm also interested in discussing with you your parallel scholarship on conservation legacies. Lastly, I should confess that I'm also thrilled to chat with you about Blair. It is one of my favorite forestry conferences, and uh, I'm aware how busy you've been planning uh, the upcoming Blair conference in Rome and other things. So I really appreciate you sparing the time to talk to me. Thank you again for being our guest and a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much, Divya. It's really a pleasure to be a part of the podcast, which I uh, have also really enjoyed following over the last uh, several years. So Dan, um, I want to open our conversation by asking you uh, what we normally refer to as the origin story. This is basically a way for us to get a sense of who you are, where you come from, the kind of personal and professional turning points that have shaped your career and that have led you to become who you are as a scholar and the scholarship that you're motivated to advance. Great. Thank you. You know, in my courses, I try to humanize the scholars that we read. I think it's very easy uh, as students and graduate students, uh, and even as faculty members and scholars, to be in awe uh, of many people that we encounter. Uh, and I think it's really great. Everyone has their origin story. And that we, we have a choice in terms of what we are focusing on for our work. And we make those choices based on our own history. So I think this is a great idea. And happy to share a little bit about my own background. Um, so I think the really the roots of my work, so I grew up on a farm, a goat farm, actually, uh, in northern Illinois. And it was near a university, Northern Illinois University, where my father worked as a chef. And he had colleagues, it, it was a, you know, a university that had lots of international students. Uh, and so we actually wound up having international students living with us on the farm, in particular from Malaysia. So when I was a kid, we always had people around, uh, in addition to all the farm animals. Um, and that was, I think, very formative for me just to see different cultures. So I'm a you know, white American male, U.S. citizen, but most of my professional work has been outside of this country. Uh, and I think I can trace the origins of that interest to those formative experiences on the farm. And in fact, I've kept in touch with a number of the students uh, that we were close with and have gone to visit them subsequently in Malaysia. I think uh, first was in 2000. And then in 2018, I also caught up with uh, some of the, the former students uh, in Malaysia. 
So I think that was really kind of a formative experience. And the farm also was kind of, uh, it was a back to the land. My parents were kind of back to the land hippies, I guess. And uh, so we had everything. The main thing that we were farming, uh, raising was goats, but orchard and bees. And so that attuned me to the natural world. And Northern Illinois is not so forested. If you've ever been there or any of your uh, listeners have been there, it's very flat. But um, we did have some beautiful trees. And the the man who owned the farm before us, uh, Mr. Elmer Anderson, had planted a lot of the trees and, and then left some. And so I think my interest in forests and trees really stemmed from that little plot of land in, in Northern Illinois. Uh, but then in high school and in college, I, I was an environmental activist and was always interested in the social side um, of environmental issues and bridging with environmental justice, in particular, human rights and other issues. And college in particular just opened my eyes to issues, for example, in Burma. Um, I was part of this Free Burma Coalition at the time. Um, So just very interested in in those things, which I then was able to mesh with my coursework. So I was a political science major, uh, as, as well as French And I also took and studied Indonesian language. So uh, that was in college and had the chance to study abroad in Indonesia. And that was really very much formative for me, Um, particularly since it was so close to Malaysia at the time. Uh, So, and I think just the Rio conference in 1992, this will date me, Uh, but that was a really kind of formative moment. And I think my interest in, understanding conservation issues and funding and international cooperation, that was kind of a key watershed moment uh, for me. So I I think those are the early roots. After after college, I actually stayed to do a master's degree also in political science. And then I did a program through Stanford University called Volunteers in Asia. It's kind of like the US Peace Corps but I was partnered with a rural community development NGO called Yayasan Diantama in Indonesia, in Indonesian Borneo. It was mostly indigenous Dayak run. Um, and that really was just a decisive experience for me where I was able to see some of the challenges that uh, indigenous Dayak communities were facing with environmental degradation, loss of their forest, uh, just the market uh, pressures that they were facing, the pressures on their culture. And I was helping the NGO with uh, English language, teaching English to the staff, helping work on proposals, etc. And of course, I learned way more from them than they ever learned from me. But one thing I'm pleased with was that I was helping to write uh, proposals. And the first one I wrote was to the European Union, um, just helping my my boss, the head of the NGO, uh, with some of the English and also with the content. It was a kind of back and forth. Um, and that proposal was accepted, which was amazing to me. It was like a million dollars, which at the time was a lot, and five years of funding for this relatively small NGO. Uh, unfortunately, I was soon thereafter evacuated from Indonesia. This is right after September 11th. 
And there were a lot of 2001. And so there were a lot of concerns for the safety of the volunteers. And so the program, the parents were up in arms. So the program uh, closed for a moment and I had to leave. I, I wasn't personally worried, um, but others were. And so that was you know, fairly traumatic uh, because I really was enjoying the work and had planned to stay at least another year. So, but I was able to, uh, after some months, I was able to land a, a life-changing job with the MacArthur Foundation, which is kind of, I exchanged my muddy boots in Indonesia for a student tie uh, in the skyscraper in Chicago, uh, working with their conservation and sustainable development program. And that just gave me such a different window on some of the issues and challenges that I was working on in Indonesia, but from a funder perspective. Uh, it also allowed me to meet a lot of people in our field that have really made a difference. Uh, first, it's the first time I was able to meet and get to work with Eleanor Ostrom, for example, and then Arun Agrawal, who became my PhD supervisor subsequently. So that was just an eye-opening experience. But being there, I was there for six years. And toward the end, I had these questions, you know, what happens to all this funding once it's over, <laughs> you know, which of course we would have a sense from project reports and things, but you know, what is the, what does it leave behind? Right. And then there were also just basic questions that I wasn't able to answer at the foundation about the overall funding landscape. Like I, my boss asked me to do research on what's going on in terms of funding for conservation in different countries. And it was really challenging to do it. Um, and it still is almost, you know, more than a decade later, just different databases and things. So those kinds of questions uh, led me to want to go back to do my PhD, which I was so pleased to do at the University of Michigan under the guidance of Arun Agarwal. Mm -hmm. When I first started the PhD, I was like, I had no interest in academia, really, and just was interested in uh, working for a think tank or maybe an NGO on the research side, but academia hadn't entered my mind, but it was through the process of doing it that I'm like, hey, I really like this. and I like working with colleagues and um, having this freedom to pursue questions that are interesting to me. Um, but I, my job out of a PhD was actually at the World Bank. Uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have a, a professor position or even a postdoc right away, but was moved back into the policy practice side at the World Bank. Uh, and so I spent a couple of years there uh, before having my first faculty job, which was at the University of Illinois. So that's filling in a little bit of the later gaps of the story that we could talk about. Yeah, now this is um, really interesting because rarely there are academics who already come with this experience of working with a think tank. And then here you are, not only did you uh, work with a small NGO and then larger like MacArthur uh, Foundation prior to your PhD, but also after your PhD, you went on to work with World Bank. So I'm wondering, you know, th this experience that you had both prior to your PhD and also post your PhD, does it in any way shape the understanding of the real world, especially the, the questions that you investigate in some way or the way you approach these questions in some way? Absolutely. So I wind up studying things like the flow of 
financing for conservation and try to trace it from decision making within organizations like MacArthur or the World Bank, but to trace it to the ground. And I think it was so critical for me to first have had experience working with uh, a local and largely indigenous NGO to have that on the ground perspective first and foremost. Uh, that's what I'm interested in. Ultimately, I'm interested in outcomes uh, and how conservation policy and funding affects people's lives and their lived experience in this world, uh, as well as the other species with whom we, we share the world. And so that initial experience um, working with the Ayasandiantama was just so formative. And I always try to keep that in my, in my mind. But having the kind of 40,000 foot high view of mm -hmm. World Bank decision making also is was really revelatory. I mean, the thing that most struck me from that work was I was in the, the forestry team at the bank and they had just done had an independent evaluation of all of their funding for forests done before I arrived. And a top line kind of finding is that forestry or forest related lending from the bank was less than 1% of its overall portfolio. So it was 0.78%. And as someone, and I think this, I talk with my students about this, you know, you, we wind up focusing so much on environmental issues, whatever they may be. And that becomes our world, protected areas, water resources, whatever it may be. Uh, and we don't, we, we're so into that that we don't step back to try to see it in context. And the World Bank really allowed me to see that, hey, the mainstream world is not devoting a lot of attention to forests as reflected by, you know, the World Bank is reflective of its members. And so member countries, you know, one, less than 1% for forests um, really shows you something. And so I think the challenge that we have as uh, scholars, as activists and practitioners is to raise the profile of environmental issues and try to make them more mainstream. So those are some of the ways in which my pre-PhD and then post kind of practical experience post-PhD have shaped my research and teaching. Dan, I really like this idea that you mentioned how as an academic one, we operate as not just scholars, but also as activists. And then the second one, which I think is going to like stay in my mind for a long time, is that how one of the roles as academics, especially those who are working on these like real world critical issues, is to raise the profile of these issues. And uh, so uh, this is something that it resonates with a previous interview that I just did with a scholar based in India. His name is Sharad Lele. Some of the ideas that he talked about how he sees his role as a scholar is to to really push for these issues that he really believes in. He talked about how values are ingrained. I mean, as scientists, we are supposed to not bring our values into our work, but then um, it is inevitable for our values to not be influenced uh, in the message that we want to convey through our work. Yeah, sure. The very, I mean, the very topics we study or don't study our value choice. Um, I am influenced by the American historian uh, Howard Zinn, who says you can't be neutral on a moving train. 
And so, you know, the train is moving for sure. Uh, and even if you try not to be neutral, that's that's a choice or try to be neutral, that, that is a choice. Um, having said that, I do also try to, I mean, I have students and colleagues from many different perspectives and do want to be open to those, like genuinely open to different perspectives if they come from a place of goodwill and curiosity. Um, and so I try, particularly in the realm of you know, teaching about environmental policy, there are many different potential avenues towards solutions. And uh, so I want to be open to those, even as I might have my own views. And I think one other thing that just our discussion is raising for me is, you know, I, I've consciously chosen to focus on, I mean, I joke with my students, I, I study two things that I hate, which are money and politics. So, and I actually really, I don't hate either of them, I suppose. Um, but I do study those things because I've come to understand how decisive they can be in shaping the things that I do care about, which is that people are able to live the kind of lives that they want to live, particularly those that are the most marginal among us, and that we have a flourishing life on earth, <laughs> you know, this beautiful, riotous diversity of life that we have around us. Um, that it's able to flourish as well. And so that directs my attention to money and politics, which then causes me to think about larger organizations and institutions, uh, governments, donors, uh, etc. rather than, and, and so I think someone looking at my scholarship, at least to date, might think, oh, this guy's, you know, just focusing at this level, um, what is his connection to what's actually happening on the ground? Um, and I, I kind of struggle with working at those different levels. But as we discussed earlier, I always would like in the back of my mind for the work that I do at, you know, on, on funding decision making within large organizations or government policies, et cetera, to have in mind what is actually happening in the world in particular places and for particular people. Sure, yeah. I mean, talking about money and politics, I think it's a really nice segue into your work on, on conservation legacies that you did in Western Africa region. You talked about earlier that how you're mostly kind of focusing on South Asian region, for example, Indonesia and Malaysia, and then in your PhD, you switched to a different geography altogether. So I want to start out by asking what, was the intellectual impetus for this work? Yeah, well, that and this is another aspect of scholarship that I think is interesting to highlight. Um, I had planned to do continue my work in Indonesia for the PhD, um, but my now wife had done the Peace Corps in Benin in West Africa, and I had visited her a couple of times for a month at a time. And we actually met in college in French class and the same environmental activist club. Um, and so I spoke French, uh, which is the, the official language in Benin. And the issues that I was interested in thinking about from my work in, in MacArthur at the time were very salient also in Benin. And I thought, you know, we just were recently 
married at the time of the PhD. And I thought, I'm not going to go all the way to Indonesia. And she would do field work. She was also doing her PhD in African art history. And so I actually shifted the kind of geographic focus of my work based on that personal circumstance. But there was a substantive and scholarly reason to do it as well. Um, it was similar questions of the influence of international aid on social and ecological outcomes around protected areas was the big topic. And what I discovered through travels with my wife when she was in the Peace Corps, there was a, a there is a national park in the north of Benin, curiously called W National Park. And it's named W for a giant double bend that the, the Niger River makes as it flows through. And that river is the borderline of Benin and Niger, uh, and then there's another part of this park in Burkina Faso. So you have three countries, one giant national park. It's three separate national parks. Uh, but in the French colonial era, it was one national park, uh, French, quote unquote, French national park, uh, with three different territories. And then at independence in 1960, it was divided up. So they, all three of these countries have a national park called W. Uh, so since 1960 and independence on the Benin side, which is by far the largest, I mean, it's, it's about the size of the U.S. state of Massachusetts. It's a very large area. Uh, but on the Benin side, there had been very little government intervention. I mean, there were, it was a, you know, protected areas, agencies in the forestry department uh, that were nominally patrolling, but it was effectively an open access resource and a, a patronage resource for grazing animals in particular, hunting uh, and other things. Until 2002, when this large infusion of cash through a European Union funded project came in and kind of shifted the balance and led to the hiring of many more park guards, the promotion of tourism, largely from international uh, travelers, and greater enforcement of the actual rules on paper, in addition to some work with communities in the buffer zone areas, etc. And so just that was a very interesting context because of the, the fact that there wasn't really much funding pre-2002. Uh, and then it's a, it was a blanket aid project laid over three different countries. And so as a political scientist, I was drawn to the idea that I could compare uh, the effects of this project in three countries. Uh, it's really interesting to know the background of W National Park and uh, how you describe the whole geography and also the history, the historical background of the region. I'm still curious as to like, you know, why conservation legacies? What inspired you to pursue this question of protected area governance in this region? Yeah, so the work of Eleanor Ostrom and Arun Agarwal and other colleagues is very formative for me in thinking about managing common pool resources generally, but protected areas, which of course there are different types, uh, ranging from very strict, you know, no access except to government officials or scientists through to community governed areas. And so I was just interested in understanding the governance of protected areas and how aid interfaces with that 
governance, uh, both from the state and then what's going on, you know, the sort of de jure state involvement and then de facto both state and local community involvement. Mm -hmm. And I think the larger agenda, intellectual agenda for the conservation legacies work, which I continue to work on both in Benin and then through a project actually now funded by the MacArthur Foundation to look at, they've since closed their conservation and development program, which is unfortunate. Uh, and they have given a grant to myself and a number of colleagues to actually look at the legacy, quote unquote, of that program itself, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. But the intellectual interest here is that Ostrom's design principles, for example, which would be familiar to listeners of the, the podcast, I'm sure. Um, but her work there and then with the social ecological systems framework really brackets external actors, quote unquote. And it, a couple of the design principles talk about nestedness and external actors, but she really left unexplored, largely, what we can say beyond, I mean, she says basically external actors shouldn't mess with what's going on with successful common pool governance, which of course, great, yes. But what could they do positively or what could external actors of different kinds do to facilitate collective action at the community level? And those questions, I think, are largely to this day uh, unanswered in the literature. And so I'm especially interested in external funders of different mm -hmm. kinds from private philanthropy, which is increasingly important to multilateral and bilateral aid agencies. What are some principles or what are factors associated with successful external funding interventions that support local communities to effectively manage their resources over time? And so I think that that's the bigger intellectual agenda to which I would am striving to contribute. Sure, absolutely. I mean, from what I hear from you, I can gather that that this international aid definitely plays a huge role in the way conservation is carried out in this region. But I want to uh, go back to, again, like conservation legacies and hear a little bit more about what conservation legacies in that region mean. Like, Can you uh, elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so I think another strand of the literature that I engage with is policy and program evaluation, uh, which is getting ever more sophisticated, both using you know, randomized control trials, uh, field experiments, but also quasi-experimental research design to understand the impacts of different kinds of policy interventions. And that literature has, uh, with Paul Ferraro and, and many others, has attuned us to the importance of really credibly addressing potential confounding factors in our explanations about the effects of different programs. That work has largely focused on the near-term okay. impacts. So the effects of a given intervention, say a protected area, in the case that we're talking about, um, maybe not long after it was established or a payments for environmental services program. And the studies have typically focused on kind of near-term impacts, which is hard enough to understand, right? But what I'm interested to understand is the longer-term impacts, like five, 
and 10 and more years after the intervention? What is sort of the resonance of these previous interventions? So in the W case, I mean, there was really very little funding or government activity in this region, in in the protected area, um, Mm -hmm. until this large project came. And so I studied it, it ended in 2008, and I was there in 2010-11, but I've subsequently gone back and cited household surveys, focus group interviews with, um, you know, Fulani uh, herders groups, with park guards, with uh, women's cooperatives, with hunters, etc. But I, I then went back about 10 years after that to, again, interview the same households uh, and talk to some of the same groups mm-hmm. to see what was going on. And there hadn't been too much funding in the intervening years. So there was sort of this pulse of funding from 2002 to 2008 or so. And then since then, um, well, actually, in the last in, in 2020, a huge new project came in again. So from the local community perspective, it's mm-hmm. like whiplash. It's it's awful, in fact. And one of the legacies is you have rules on paper, mm-hmm. they are not enforced, and there's a set of informal norms about who can do what, kind of patronage politics. Then all of a sudden, with external support, they're enforced. And then that cuts off people from using those resources. And then that money goes away. (laughs) And so those previous informal norms and patronage politics kind of go back into place. And then another pulse of money comes in. And so from the lived experiences, uh, to to be honest, it's, it's really very challenging for people living uh, in and around that park. And particularly for some communities. One of the things I found was a lot of heterogeneity in the impact um, with certain communities just really, really suffering because of the newly imposed restrictions and others benefiting from jobs, like for example, in tourism or as a guide for hunting or employment with the park. Um, And so on average, I found that those kind of canceled each other out. So there wasn't an average um, statistical impact, uh, statistically significant impact on livelihoods and some of the well-being indicators that I used. But when you disaggregated, you found that the the extreme ones kind of canceled each other out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as I'm hearing you narrate this way funding works in this region and the kind of impacts it has on on different people. I mean, clearly the impacts are very differentiated. There are some people who benefit a whole lot, but then there are some who are deprived. And this makes me think about what does the funding do for these people and for this region? Yeah, so follow the money is what I try to do. And I do this also in my classes. I ask students, okay, well, we say that conservation requires money. What, what does it go for? What, mm-hmm. what do, so we brainstorm and I write the answers on the chalkboard. And people shout out the different things that it could do uh, that, that would be needed from you know, hiring staff is the first one, right? Uh, so jobs and then outfitting the staff, uh, particularly park guards, for example, would need, and then training. So uh, research, 
liaison with communities, maybe infrastructure, building roads, guard mm -hmm. posts. Uh, in this case, water is a real issue and uh, for animals and for people. And so mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the resources actually went to building water holes for, for large mammals within the park. And also that would attract uh, tourists because the animals would go there in the dry season and um, tourists would be able to see them more easily, but also boreholes for wells and for livestock, domestic animals for communities outside of the park. So those are some of the things. But I did look at the the name of the project was ECOPAS, and it's funded by the EU. And I looked at their budget documents, and my analysis showed that really 10% about was devoted to activities that might have a benefit directly for communities living around the park. And the other 90% was really could be traced to enforcement and mostly having to do with keeping people out. And so that there was a real imbalance in terms of looking at the budget. And so you wouldn't be surprised to see the aid would have, you know, not the most salutary effects on some of the communities, at least. I mean, employment, I think, was a big key way that some of the communities were able to benefit directly mm -hmm. from this project. Yeah, this is something that I'm really passionate about because there were these funding programs that were initiated in the context where I've been working in India. And uh, one of the observations uh, that we've made across the board is that these funding programs are always project-based. So they're most five years or max 10 years. But then when the funding is gone, that leaves the communities in the worst state possible because here they were in a situation where they were able to make some income out of being employed in the project. But then once the project is over, they are again left without uh, any income. And, and a lot of work that uh, Ashwini and colleagues have done, they talk about motivation crowding. Like It's not that people weren't involved in the process of managing the forests in a collective way, but these financial incentives kind of like meddled with their motivation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering, what are the long-term impacts, like both social as well as uh, ecological impacts of these aid programs? Yeah, I think that aid, uh, international support can work best when it's inculcated and integrated within existing and effective governance structures. And oftentimes this is not the case. So in Benin and Niger, the two case study countries that I focused on that both have these W national parks, um, they have different decentralization extents. And Benin being more effectively decentralized than, than Niger. Um, but still, I think the one of the chapters of my dissertation talks about the kind of missing middle that aid tends to skip over often newly empowered or you know, relatively recently empowered local government structures. Uh, it kind of works with national government, protected mm -hmm. areas, agencies, forestry departments, and then creates or works with local community groups and skips over this sort of uh, decentralized local government structures. And I think that that winds up being a problem uh, mm -hmm. because it's some of the gains and the training and other aspects are not really well integrated into uh, local governments that have authority uh, and, and really have a big effect on people's lives. So that's, I think, one thing to say. And I, 
The Niger case was really sad because at the national level, the if you look at the geography of Niger, it's a huge country. Most of it is comprised of the Sahara Desert. But in the far southwest side of the country, it gets a little greener. It's still a Sahelian zone. But there you have the W National Park. And so it's, you know, and it's close relatively to the capital of Niamey and uh, has historically had uh, tourists and significant national interest. Um, and so the government had a line, a budget line devoted to supporting the park. When this EU project came in, the government said, well, why should we be supporting this when we can get outsiders to do it? And so the decision was taken to, uh, you know, have a kind of aid-focused line, but not in the main government budget. And so the Nigerian contribution to management of the park basically went away during the end of that, the Ecopass project. And then when the project was over, there were no funds. And so, but yet you had the staff and uh, all this infrastructure in place that needed to be maintained, and there wasn't a budget for it. And so when I was doing fieldwork, I saw... Um, you know, corruption by the park guards who, of course, have their own families uh, to look yeah. after and their own needs, and they weren't being paid. And so it just it winds up being a, a bad situation for everyone. But I think that's a kind of an example of some of the perverse effects that projects can have from the outside that we would want to avoid. Um, you had asked about kind of more general social and ecological impacts over time. I, mean, I think work by uh, Johan Oldekop and others, you know, the uh, really nice kind of global review paper that they did a few years back, mm-hmm. and then subsequently a series of case studies have shown that positive outcomes for people as well as for biodiversity and the natural environment are more likely when protected areas are effectively co-managed and when they bring clear benefits for local communities. So that's that work has, I think, pretty consistently found that. And so aid that would support effective co-management, including integration with local government, um, and bring specific benefits to communities is more likely to lead to better, at least near-term outcomes. Now, over the longer term, I think it's developing capacity and the financing mm-hmm you know, figuring out how to do that. Um, Places where tourism, I mean, the pandemic has shown the the dangers of relying on ecotourism, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, My last trip before the pandemic was to Kenya for a conference on the, for the forest and poverty work at ECRAF. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Masai Mara uh, and it was just incredible. So different from West Africa, Uh, much more developed from a tourism perspective very sophisticated and spectacular. Uh, But during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. all of that fell away. And so I know that they've had some of the same problems that I outlined for Niger and and Benin cases. When the money goes away, what do people do for their livelihoods? Um, So I think this is kind of a a perennial problem and um, without an easy solution. Absolutely. What you're talking about, it is very evident that it's not, for some reason, you know, the, the impact of these programs cannot be sustained. 
because once the, the funding finishes, it's it's really difficult to keep things going the way they they were. I know that you're interested in uh, continuing working on this aspect, and this was part of your dissertation work, and and you're continuing you're thinking about continuing this work uh, even in the future. So I'm I'm wondering like what are some critical questions that you want to pursue uh, moving forward? So I'm interested in through case study research to really understand are there you know what are cases of success if if at all and what what are the factors associated with that kind of success and so this MacArthur project that I mentioned that's looking at they've actually given us the foundation has given us access to all of their kind of internal documents uh, the proposals and the briefs describing the work their strategy documents and we're using that corpus as well as talks with former grantees and experts um, in, uh, actually we're, we're focusing on three different case study countries, Bhutan, very different, chosen because they're quite different circumstances, but all of which yeah. were among the countries that have received the most funding from, from MacArthur. So Bhutan, Madagascar, and Peru the three case study countries and then we have mm -hmm. kind of the, all this literature and text from uh the the concert the foundation's program over 40 years basically and so we're interested mm -hmm. in looking at all of that evidence and trying to tease out some lessons about what might have led to more effective foundation support over time and so this is largely qualitative work, but we are working, I'm working with a team of data scientists to look quantitatively at some of the texts, for example, and some doing some really interesting, for me, it's, it's innovative in the, the field of conservation for uh, making use of text and, and patterns in the text over, over time and the large, large quantities of, mm -hmm. of text. So Kind of teasing out any lessons and I guess I I feel like we're thinking about the long term I mean process tracing and and really just trying to look back at what has led to you know, certain sequences of events that have led to what we find now um, and trying to tease out lessons from that that's a very general answer but we're kind of we're planning this fall we've to we've got basically a case study team for each of the three countries uh, and we're having a workshop this fall to kind of bring together our findings and we'll be excited to to let you and the community know what we find this is really amazing dan i mean for me i think why i feel so excited at this point because i'm just amazed how all these observations that you're sharing resonate with the context that I'm working in, which is so geographically like far away. So, I mean, for me, these are the things that I find extremely interesting. We talk about that, how every context is very specific and it has its own intricacies and, and unique nuances and realities. Uh, yet I think I'm, I'm most fascinated by, despite the, the differences, I'm, I'm most fascinated by the parallels that exists uh, between these countries. And with that, I will transition into this uh, current scholarship that you're working on, where you're working with a very uh, fairly large uh, group of scholars looking at 
the, the impact of the forest poverty relationships. The focus of this work is looking at how forests can possibly serve as a way to alleviate poverty. So I'm really interested as to how uh, this whole idea came into being and what are the visions that you have for this project? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, this is a big strand of, of research that I've been involved in for a number of years now. And it, we've just finally wrapped up a special issue of the Journal Forest Policy and Economics mm -hmm. that's publishing some of the findings. This work was supported originally by the by IUFRO, the International Union of Forestry Research Organizations. And they have a neat program on global forest expert panels, and they basically identify uh, salient and important themes related to anything related to forests, and, and particularly policy uh, globally, mm -hmm. and they choose a theme and then they identify experts to be on the panel. Uh, they identify eventually a chair, which I was uh, grateful to be chosen for that role, mm -hmm. and then set out kind of like a mini IPCC or something, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to kind of what is the current scientific evidence on this topic? And so forest, trees, and poverty was the topic that they had chosen. I had actually been working on that topic for years before, as others on the panel, um, really influenced by earlier work by uh, Harold Engelson and Sven Wonder um, at at C4 and elsewhere, mm -hmm. Pam Jagger, and then Anirudh Krishna's work on thinking about poverty as a dynamic process that people not only can escape from poverty, we help hope, but also can fall into it. Um, and so some of that work has, was, has been really influential to me. And then it's basically the a big focus of my work when I was at the World Bank after my PhD and going back to the earlier part of our conversation where I said that the forestry lending portfolio was only 1%. I mean, we were advocating in the bank, uh, particularly for countries where forests are a huge asset. Uh, and yet, you know, less, less than 1% of the lending is relevant. So we that drew our attention to countries where there's high levels of poverty, um, but also uh, large forestry resources. So um, Democratic Republic of Congo stands out, um, Nigeria, uh, we did case study work in India, many other countries as, as part of that work at the World Bank. And this involved kind of conceptual work, as well as empirical work. And on the conceptual side, Reem Hajar uh, and I have edited a special issue on forests as pathways to prosperity. Mm -hmm. And that really came from the idea that I feel like there's kind of a, a, a I don't know if the right word is a ghettoization of forest and poverty that kind of puts forests in the context where they're only relevant to, um, you know, relatively marginal mm -hmm. or impoverished groups, but not more broadly to society in countries around the world. And it sort of cuts off our picture of how forests affect people's well-being. Mm -hmm. 
And from a political perspective, that then can cut off the constituencies that might support more sustainable or better management of forests. And so Reem and I developed this idea of forests and, and kind of changing the framing mm-hmm. to be about prosperity rather than just poverty, right. uh, as important as it is to consider poverty itself. Uh, but we developed this kind of broader idea of prosperity and mm-hmm. thinking about the distribution of the benefits of forests uh, within societies and just trying to expand our lens a little bit. So all of that is background to then what the special issue that I mentioned uh, that was recently published. Yeah. So um, I'm really curious to to hear, uh, and this might sound as a very fundamental or a very basic question. In your research, in what ways did you find forest aid in poverty eradication in the low-income countries? So I think part of the reason why forests have been marginalized in larger policy discourse is that they're messy. <laughs> and, and they and they we also talk about tree-based systems, so agroforestry and other you know, trees outside of forests on, on farmers' lands. Um, and they're they're not in neat rows uh, <laughs> like uh, annual crops. Um, and they do such a wide range of things for us as humans uh, that it's hard to have a simple tagline uh, like it is for other sectors, health, education. Um, and, and so I think they, they get marginalized um, and play. So I'm saying all of that because they play a, a wide range of roles. So we think about forests, first of all, as maintaining kind of current levels of well-being and consumption through the use mm-hmm. of their resources. I mean, or uh, non-timber forest products of various kinds can be used, food source or sale in the market, timber can be sold, you can make charcoal, etc. So sort of supporting current levels of consumption is one way, uh, but that's not changing people's status mm-hmm. uh, in terms of poverty. But it might prevent them from falling into poverty. So that's another aspect. So there's kind of everyday current consumption. But then in a drought, for example, if crops fail, there's research showing that um, people can turn, if they have forest and tree resources, they can turn to those resources to maintain a food supply and some level of nutrition. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of helping prevent people from falling into poverty um, in times of need. And then the third way is to think about forests as actually a pathway out of poverty and to greater mm-hmm. prosperity. And the literature there is thinner than on the other two topics that I mentioned. And it's, you know, I, I think questions of sustainability come into the picture. So clearly some timber products are really valuable. So cutting down forests, if the benefits can accrue to those who have rights to the to the trees and forests can be very powerful. And there are examples in our research of cooperatives, um, small and medium forest enterprises that have been effective in boosting community livelihoods in Mexico uh, and other contexts. So timber is a very valuable resource. There are other valuable mm-hmm. resources as well that can be captured in some cases, allow people to get cash and accumulate wealth, send their kids to school, uh, 
and develop a, a pathway out of poverty in those ways. But the evidence there is thinner than on the other uh, couple topics. So I think this is a real, you know, we could cut down all the forests in the world and immediately cash in how those benefits would be distributed is a whole other question, but then we wouldn't have that resource, right? And we would be in trouble. Uh, and so I think forests have a particular role to play in sustainable mm -hmm. approaches to uh, poverty alleviation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I hear about the different roles that forests can play in helping people not fall into that, you know, poverty trap situation and how forests at times can serve as a very important security or a safety net, especially in times of sharks. Um, and I can see the important role that the forests play in that context. But then at the same time, I cannot help but think what the conservationists might be thinking and how uncomfortable they might be with this idea of viewing forest as a safety net or as a way to eradicate poverty, especially in the tropical regions. They, they're a very important region mm. that support uh, critical biodiversity. So I'm wondering the kind of, like whether there was any pushback that you received from people and, and what were the different ways that you addressed that, that pushback or that criticism that you received? Mm. Yeah, I would say... We haven't specifically received pushback on this idea. I think yet. <laughs> um, I mean, I think in part because conservationists realize, and mm -hmm. going back to the evidence that I mentioned earlier, that if local communities are able to benefit, they're more likely to support forest conservation. Um, and it's hard. I mean, the first of the sustainable development goals mm -hmm. the UN has is about poverty, about eradicating extreme poverty. And so conservationists, I think, can't go against that, that goal. Maybe they, I mean, at least publicly. Um, and so I think the research that we've done is showing some of the possibility for having, in this case, forest be conserved and maintained in a way that advances conservation interests as well as human well-being and specifically poverty alleviation interests. So we haven't had yet anyway, um, you know, super pushback on this idea. And, I, and that might be part of the explanation for why. I will say that when the rubber hits the road, I mean, when it, like, there are trade-offs and uh, alleviating poverty or supporting people's well-being might come at mm -hmm. the cost in some cases of diversity. And I don't want to be Pollyannish about, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> about that possibility. Um, but Lauren Persia and Ashwini and Arun's work, you know, I often point to it uh, they have a piece in Science Magazine now, I don't know, five mm -hmm. years ago on social ecological synergies. And I still use that in my teaching to show the outcomes. In their case, they were looking at community forests in the IFRI program. And they have this figure that, that shows kind of high socioeconomic and 
biodiversity outcomes, you know, it's a quadrant, and then low ones. So it's low, low, high, high, and then high, low, high, you know, low, high. And you see data points in all of the quadrants, mm -hmm. which shows that all outcomes are possible <laughs> in different scenarios. And I think, you know, so you do have the lose-lose scenarios as well as the win-win. I mean, they, they mm -hmm. found that there were more on the win-win side and, and show conditions under which we might have win-wins. But there are cases where there are trade-offs. And I think we have to be honest about that. And we need evidence to understand the circumstances under which trade-offs are more or less likely, and then how the costs can be mitigated um, so that the most vulnerable among us aren't the ones that are bearing them, which is all too often the case. Thank you for, for sharing the, the visions and the insights that you have from this project and, 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 the, and, and the way you're envisioning this project to move forward in the near future. So yeah, moving on to, to Flair, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Dan, I've been a huge fan of this conference. And one of the reasons why I've loved this conference is because, um, you know, in addition to meeting with some like really cool um, scholars who've been doing some like groundbreaking work in the area of forestry all across the world, it's, it's, it's been a great conference because it's, it's a smaller conference that allows people to engage in meaningful networking and form some really nice collaborations. And I've benefited from that. Um, so it's been a great place uh, to, to not just like learn, but also like, you know, to form partnerships. Um, so I'm, I'm really uh, excited to talk uh, about Flair with you. Uh, so I want to start out by asking you uh, about, you know, what has your experience uh, of Flair been like? And, and now, since you've transitioned into this role of like, being the coordinator, what does it look? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it must be like completely different, uh, but it'll be interesting to hear. Yeah, I'm glad for your reflections. They mirror mine. Uh, Flair has emerged as just my favorite conference. Um, you know, the first one was 2015 at the Paris Climate Accords uh, just before. And... Um, just all credit to Arun Agarwal and his team, uh, especially Christy Watkins at the University of Michigan for mm -hmm. really bringing flair into being and nurturing this incredible community of scholars, practitioners, students, policymakers um, that, you know, I, I've just enjoyed the flair meetings so much and they've really been catalytic in my own work. I think all the work that I was just describing about forest and poverty is a direct result of my work with Flair. The work I, I met and got to know Reem Hajar, for example, through Flair. And then we've subsequently uh, worked on a number of things together, including that special issue in, in world development on forests as pathways to prosperity as a direct uh, Flair output. So yeah, um, mm -hmm. It's really an honor now to kind of take the reins from Arun and move Flair into a new phase of its being. And you know, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. as coordinator. Um, it's just it's a different kind of view so far. <laughs> you know, um, 
I see you breathing a <laughs> yeah. deep sigh of no, yeah, <laughs> organizing a huge conference. I just have you know have so much respect for Arun and Christy for what mm-hmm. they've been able to do, and having you know um, really good partners enables that to happen with more ease. And mm-hmm. so there's just been a lot of transition mm-hmm. to kind of getting it up and running here yeah. now at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and then organizing a conference largely from here that will now be in Rome has been a challenge. But I'm just so heartened by the interest in Flair. Yeah. I think many in the community share the, our view. And so this year we actually, you know, annually we, we do a call for abstracts and submissions for the conference. And we had a record number of submissions this year. Um, and so we've just recently made decisions about those and are moving to begin to finalize the program, mm-hmm. which will be in October at the meeting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's really neat to have. I mean, I've loved looking at all of the submissions. Just mm-hmm. you get uh, it's a privileged view of what is the kind of cutting edge research on forests and livelihoods broadly construed. Right. And right. It's, it's a it's a gift to be able to um, see what's going on and to help uh, foster mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, are there aspects of flair which were already there that you want to still hold on to? And are there new things that you want to bring in to this network? Yeah, I mean, flair is a, we've created a, you know, it's a, it's a commons. It's a common, it, flair is us. Flair is the the members mm-hmm. of the community and people who contribute to it and and sustain it and make it happen, and so that kind of community mm-hmm. feel. I feel like Flair is fun, also. You know, just it's mm-hmm. a it's a joy to mm-hmm. see old colleagues and meet new uh, new colleagues and friends. Um, so keeping that kind of community spirit and mm-hmm. openness to new ideas. I mean, definitely the character of Flair, uh, I want to maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I'd i like to grow the community. I want it to you know keep it intimate, um, but also reach out to new, new thought partners. Um, and I think we're just at this pivotal moment in, in terms of forests where, and livelihoods, where forests are getting more attention in international policy uh, decision-making than I've ever seen in my lifetime. So the Glasgow COP, for example, all of these billions of dollars of commitments to forests, huge commitments to indigenous peoples and local communities are recognizing their rights and supporting their uh, interactions with forests. Uh, Just the level is is greater than I've seen. And so that raises a whole host of questions now, kind of moving from, you know, advocacy for community rights and livelihoods to actually funding and policies being changed in support of those rights. Um, And so that brings challenges of implementation. And so the opening panel of the FLAIR meeting in Rome will consist of a diverse group of scholars, donors, mm-hmm. uh, practitioners, indigenous peoples kind of talking about what does that mean? <laughs> Where to now? And what's the role of research in uh, moving forward with this 
broader agenda that more firmly places forests on it. I think there's a concern that uh, forests Mm -hmm. are seen just as a carbon uh, carbon sink and um, their role in mitigating climate change threatens to you know, overshadow mm-hmm. and come at the cost of local livelihoods. So I think the work that right. Flair is set up yeah. to do is more important than ever now, Very actually, deadly. given this current policy environment. Now, I mean, this has been such a wonderful opportunity to uh, just hear you speak so honestly, not just about your research, but also like about your the roles that you're performing. So thank you so much, Dan, for engaging with me and and uh, sharing your insight, your experiences. I, I really appreciate that. But before I uh, before I wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you if there's anything that I missed asking you, if there's anything that you wanted to share that we didn't get a chance to talk about. I love that question. You know, that we didn't get a chance to talk about. I mean, I suppose I, I want to end. I've, I've so enjoyed our conversation. Um, and it's great to have Likewise. the chance to uh, kind of step back and reflect. And so thank you so much for that opportunity. I guess the thing that I that worries me is just, uh, you know, as a, as a U.S. citizen, I've taken for granted um, kind of a functioning <laughs> democracy and the importance of democracy. And I've seen uh, pro-democracy movements uh, be so inspiring in Indonesia, um, also earlier in, in Benin, and some of the countries where I've spent more time, and the the importance of people having a voice in shaping the policies that affect them and what happens in their lives, and I'm increasingly worried that that choice is being foreclosed for so many in so many countries with rising authoritarianism. And I include my own country in that. I'm just increasingly so concerned uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're moving toward an authoritarian uh, regime here and and many other contexts, including Benin, which I know well. And so I think this kind of cloud is very real, Mm -hmm. uh, already is having having effects in many countries, uh, Mm -hmm. including Brazil, uh, Hungary, and others. And so I think... For those of us interested in the commons, um, interested in human mm-hmm. well-being and the flourishing, mutual flourishing of other species in our common home, uh, this kind of rise of authoritarianism is a real concern and threats to democracy. So I think that's something we as scholars, as educators, mm-hmm. activists have to take really seriously and, and think carefully and collectively about you know, how, what, what should we do? What can we do? And so that's something, (laughs) sorry to be a little depressing at the end, but I just, I think that this is a bigger context in which we operate. And I think we need to be conscious of it and creatively think about, you know, these real threats to including academic freedom Mm -hmm. um, and the ability to explore some of these questions. Yeah. So that's a kind of bigger concern that's been on my mind uh, these days. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think so many of us would relate to that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you raised that concern and it does not sound negative at all. I think unless we don't talk about it, there's no way that, you know, we would be able to think about how to navigate, you know, our way out of it. So, so thank you so much. Um, 
Um, I'm just so grateful, Dan, that I got a chance to talk to you. Thanks again for, for sharing all really interesting work that you're doing. I'm definitely going to keep thinking about the role of external intervention and inevitably be drawing like all these parallels between India, Nepal, with the context where I've been working and, you know, the regions where you've been working. So, so you've given a, a lot of like food for thought to me. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks everyone for listening. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.